Good morning, everyone. Won't you join me again this morning in Matthew chapter 13? We're going to be in verses 44 to 46 today. We're doing a series on Jesus' parables of the kingdom where he is radically reorienting their hope uh, for the kingdom in this age between the first and second comings of Christ. In the first week, we spoke about the kingdom. What do we mean by the kingdom? And we saw that it's wherever the rule and reign of Christ is experienced, where the king is, where he is reigning, that's his kingdom. The kingdom is inaugurated not by force when Jesus came, but by the death of the king to make possible the kingdom and ultimately a dwelling place for God and man on earth. In the second week, we saw the first of the parables, the parable of the sower. It's the first refocusing of our hope that the king comes with a message, his message for the world, the seed of his word, but not all will receive that word. But those who do for them, there will be a fruitful harvest. In the third week, we looked at the parable of the wheat and the weed, the wheat and the weeds, that there is an enemy who desires to spoil the harvest, but that the sower is not concerned or worried. He calls us to patience and to endurance as we live our lives as citizens of his kingdom. And then last week, the fourth week, we looked at the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. The kingdom's beginnings appear to be small and insignificant, but there is ultimately no power that will halt the spread of the gospel or the king's purposes in our world. And so we come now to verses 44 to 46, two very short parables, probably to me the most precious parables in this entire chapter. It appears by this point that Jesus is no longer teaching to the vast crowds. He's in a home with his disciples privately speaking to them, and he gets now to the real heart of what it means to receive the kingdom and surrender to its king. Let's read together. From verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Let's pray. Our dear Father, we, we ask you, Lord, that as there is treasure before us, treasure available to us, that you would open our eyes to see it today. Help us to know the treasure that is there for us, we ask in your holy name. Amen. The idea of actually stumbling across hidden treasure in a field is one that fascinates us. It's why Indiana Jones was so popular those decades ago, and it's why he vastly oversold the field of archaeology to many young boys. I remember as a kid on holiday, we went with our friends to the Berg. I was about six or seven years old, and we went to bed with our clothes hidden underneath our pillows so we could wake up before the crack of dawn. We got dressed quietly, and then we snuck out and climbed the mountain that we were staying under in search of buried treasure. And we searched all morning for treasure, and all we got for our trouble was a stick when we came home, and our parents were worried sick about us. 
But the idea of actually finding treasure doesn't leave the hearts of many. You know, there are companies that, that actually fund and pay for deep sea excursions in the world today looking for sunken treasure. And so we come to this parable, finding hidden treasure in a field, and you might laugh it off as impossible, but think about it. It was a time when they didn't have banks and they were invading armies from time to time. If an army is coming towards your home, what do you do with your possessions? Often they would hide them buried in a field. And, if, and who knows how that situation would end up. Many people couldn't come back for their treasure afterwards. I was reading in the Washington Post this week of a 70-year-old East England man named Eric Laws. And he was trying to help his friend, a man named Peter Watling, who was a farmer, search for a hammer in his field. He was walking through this uh, field with a, a metal detector and apparently um, Watling had plowed the fields a little bit more deeply this year. And as Laws is searching for this hammer, he uncovers or he stumbles upon a fifth century hoard of Roman artifacts, coins and gold and, and jewels, precious jewels. They, they dug it all out and ultimately reporters came and he told reporters, everybody who uses a metal detector hopes to find a treasure, but this was beyond my wildest dreams. Now, unfortunately for modern day Englishmen who stumble upon treasure in their friends' farms, it's not gonna help you just to bury it back up and try and buy your friend's farm because according to English law, if, that, um, if you can't trace the original owner and it can be determined that it was concealed there purposefully, deliberately concealed, then that property or that treasure becomes the property of Her Majesty the Queen. He got a reward, however. I don't know if Watling got anything. He told reporters there was a lovely choker-type necklace that would have been nice for the wife. Beyond my wildest dreams, Laws had said. That is the sentiment that captures the truth of these parables. Both the man who stumbled upon a treasure hidden in a field and for the merchant of pearls who spent his entire life looking for fine pearls. Both of them knew that what they had found was worth more than all the possessions they had in this world and worthy of selling all in order to gain. And the point is this. If the kingdom in this world is where Christ rules, where his reign is received and submitted to, the parables present this kingdom life, that life lived in submission to the king as the most precious thing that you could find in all the world, so precious that you should joyfully and readily exchange everything you have for that life. These parables are most precious to me in all of the parables of Matthew 13 because I know my heart and I know in my heart it is a daily battleground to find joy in Christ, to find rest in Him. Every single day I have to have my eyes ripped off of the focus on the world, its distractions and its cheap trinkets, its overwhelming concerns and refixed on Christ in whom is the only abundant life. And I I believe there are many of you today for whom that is also true. That it is a battleground in your heart to rest in Christ, to find joyful obedience to His Word. There are three things I want us to see from these parables. We're gonna look at the value of the kingdom first, then the cost of the kingdom, and finally, the joy of the kingdom. Number one, the value of the kingdom. 
One of the truths of these parables is that the treasure that these two men found when they, uh, either in the field or the, the merchant who found that pearl, it is a treasure that not all find. That's one of the points. The owner of the field didn't even know what was buried in his field. The man who found it, we don't know if he, he was passing through the field. Maybe he was a hired worker working in the fields when he uncovered it. And what does he do? Secretly, he covers it back up. He goes away and sells everything he has because he knows the, the value of that treasure and he comes back hoping that his overwhelming offer would be received by the owner of that field. It's the same with the pearl merchant. Now he makes a living searching for fine pearls. He's never found anything like this before. He goes back, he can't afford it there and then. He goes back, he has to liquidate his, all, his, all his stuff, his, his estate. Maybe he's worrying Will I come back and still find the pearl there? But the, the presence of this unimaginable treasure wasn't obvious to all. And so it was with Christ as well. The King comes, John says, as glory as of the only Son from the Father. And so many people miss that glory. They miss it still today. We saw this last week, the prophecy in Isaiah 53 that says, We esteemed Him not. They shrugged him off. They took offense at him. Their curiosity faded when they didn't get the message. Time and time again throughout the Gospels, you see people like this, like the story in Luke chapter 18, right, of the rich young ruler. He comes to Jesus with a question because he is searching. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, obey all the commandments. Excited, he replies, yes, I've, I've obeyed them all from my youth. He was religious and zealous for the law. But Jesus knows there's a block in his heart to finding the kingdom. He says to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will find treasure in heaven and come, follow me. What does Luke say of the man? But that he went away very sad. He was on the precipice of finding that which his soul needed and he made a values comparison that cost him in that moment everything. Everything I have for Christ is too much to ask, Jesus. And he failed to see the worth of the one who was calling him. But for others, there was realization realization of the one who was standing before them. We see these moments of discovery in the Gospels as well. Those who come to Christ, they come in a state of need. And by their actions and words, we see what the Gospel writers are doing. They're giving us these moments of clarity meant to drive the reader to look closely. What do these people see? We're meant to look closely and see the value of the kingdom, see the glory of the king like Peter did. How does he meet Jesus? He was a beneficiary of a miracle on a beach, a net bursting with fish after a night of catching nothing. And what does he do? But he leaves the boat and he goes and falls at Jesus' feet and says, depart from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man because he has seen something. Do not be afraid, Simon. Follow me and become a fisher of men, a new treasure a new life that Peter would never lose. Or like the Samaritan woman at the well, so thirsty in her soul, 
One lover to the next, she goes searching for something to quench that thirst. And Jesus goes out of his way to have a moment with her, to ask her for a drink. What would you, a Jew, want from me or want to do with me? If you knew the gift of God, Jesus says, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. And she tries to dodge, doesn't she? Dodge his probing questions, but they shot through to her heart. She found that day the living water that would never run dry. What about the moment of clarity in Bethany? Mary of Bethany, who in utter disregard for earthly treasures, breaks open the most expensive, the most valuable thing she has, a jar full of costly nard, and she pours it, she anoints Jesus with it. The guests there who love Jesus are shocked by the waste. They berate her, but Christ's voice cuts through that cacophony in her defense. Leave her alone, he says. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in all the world, what she has done will be told in memory of her because hers is a heart where the gospel has transformed. This is what it looks like when the gospel takes root in your heart. Again and again, we see the same, these glorious moments where people get it, the value of the kingdom. They come in their need and they find peace, find rest, and they find mercy. Have you seen what they saw? Have you understood and received the treasure that they received? Do you know the value of the kingdom? Have you tasted kingdom peace? The peace Christ gives is peace with God the Father, a holy God from whom you should have been separated for all of eternity. The rest he offers is the rest of your soul, a rest in the embrace of a, a father's arms. The mercy he gives is more than, than just the outward change of circumstances. There are many people in the gospels who came to Christ and received that healing touch of Jesus, but not all of them saw the mercy, the greater mercy to which that mercy was pointing. It was only one of the 10 lepers who came back. Do you know that greater mercy today? That mountain that dwarfs the mountain of all your sins? Is your heart filled today with this truth? He is my mediator. He is my redeemer. His blood was shed for my sin. His life was given for my life. Do you feel the weight of this treasure? The forgiveness of your sins, a conscience made clean, adoption into his family, an heir of the Father, co-heirs with Christ, given an, an inheritance kept in heaven for you. Are you comforted in all your sorrows? rebuked in all your wanderings, preserved through all your dangers with the promise that you will be brought safe to your eternal home at the end. Do you believe that he rose for your justification, that he ascended into heaven where he intercedes on your behalf? Do you believe in a world that seems to have gone crazy in the power, his power, to deliver the kingdom in final glory when he returns with the angels? And we cry, Revelation 11:5, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Do you feel the weight of the kingdom that cannot be shaken? Will you finally 
you will know and experience an eternity without tears or wars or confusion or pain or darkness of any kind. Can you sense in your heart this morning the vaporness of your life in comparison to the life to come? And does the truth of what Paul said when he was speaking of his horrendous troubles and calling them light and momentary affliction in comparison to the eternal weight of glory, does that echo in your heart? And when all is said and done, is the glory that you long for, the glory of the Lamb, seeing Him face to face, we sang earlier, did you actually sing in truth that when all else in your life is weighed and found wanting, you can say, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Do you know with all your heart that the value of the kingdom is Christ himself? As the old hymn goes, the lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Do you long for the day when you can give voice face to face to the reality in your heart and you can see him and say, Jesus, you are the treasure hidden in the field that I found. You are the pearl of great price that I sold all that I have to possess. If so, we say in anticipation today, O Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing that on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but you, Lord Jesus, are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Is that true of you today? Do you know the value of the kingdom? Number two, we see the cost of the kingdom. Every parable that, that uh, Jesus has told in Matthew chapter 13 has this moment where it really hits in the gut. And this, these parables are no different. There's a line repeated in each of them that needs to land in our hearts this morning. Verse 44, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Verse 44, finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is saying there is a trade-off. There is a trade-off when it comes to receiving the kingdom of Christ. You have to let go of all the kingdoms of this world. And that, that is scary to us. It's threatening to our desires for comfort and convenience, even for self-autonomy. But this idea of trade-off shouldn't be surprising to us, right? If you've lived for any length of time, if you're an adult in this world, you know that all of life is trade-offs, isn't it? We trade our time and our energy for a salary, don't we? And then we trade that salary for the things that we believe make the time given in pursuit of that salary worth the money. School for our kids, food and houses and cars, coffee and sourdough. And all the sourdough that we have with our salary comes with a trade-off, doesn't it? How I looked in my 20s. And so I'm faced with another trade-off. Exercise in, in order to get back into shape. And I love my kids very much, but if you have kids, you know that having kids comes with a trade-off. All your free time, your date nights, your relaxing holidays, your sleep, just about everything nice in this life. And Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's a trade-off. It's everything for Christ. Now, we don't read too much into this. Jesus is not saying that you literally have to buy your way into the kingdom, but he is saying that gaining the kingdom costs you everything because the kingdom must take primary place in your heart. Christ must be first. 
He's saying you don't have space in your hands for the pearl of great price when your hands are filled with empty seashells. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will gain it. But we know, and this is where the parable hits us in the gut. We know how difficult this is. Our hearts are fickle. Our vision is short-sighted, isn't it? The things of this world make it very difficult to find the kingdom, and even those who find it need a constant reorienting of their priorities, the priorities of their hearts. The weight of eternity grows light because we are prone to selfishness and instant gratification. In our sinfulness, we do this all the time. We trade our joy and our peace in Christ for momentary pleasures. We need His help every day to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. The preciousness of mercy, the wonder of grace that we sing of week in and week out, they grow dim in, our, in the world when we, our eyes grow dim to the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. What we need is a shepherd who's constantly drawing our hearts back into His fold. We allow the glory of Christ to be assaulted by pretenders to the throne that ought to have belonged to Him alone. We need His help. We need to cry out to the Spirit every day for the restraining and retaining goodness of Christ to be weighty in our hearts. We need to pray that He would overwhelm us with His kindness, like we sing in that song. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to you. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Don't you feel it? Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for your courts above. In his book, The Storytelling God, Jared Wilson, it's about the parables of Jesus. He says this. He puts it this way. The gospel of Jesus Christ solves the innate problem we have of glory, greed. We are, every one of us from birth, incompetent thieves of the glory that belongs only to God. We know in our insidest insides that we fall short of His glory, and so we are constantly clawing and scratching to make up that difference in some way. This is how all sin is fundamentally idolatry and how all accumulations of worldly treasures, be they material goods or religious merit, are fundamentally acts of self-worship. Then, in the gospel of Christ, God forgives us our petty theft. He forgives us our petty theft, sets us free from the bondage of our idols, and unites us spiritually, irrevocably, and satisfyingly to Himself. Now the glory we try to steal is shared with us freely, and it is real glory this time, not the, these pathetic knockoffs we think will do the trick. We try to cover ourselves with fig leaves or with mud from the pigsty, filthy rags they are. But Jesus knows we are starving for glory, knows we need covering, and rather than expose our shame, He clothes us with the finest coat there is, Himself. Living as citizens of the kingdom means daily the power of the Spirit coming back to Christ so that we would never be content, never be content with the trade-off of spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus our Lord for the emptiness of worldly compromise. As C.S. Lewis put it, we wouldn't be like that child sitting in the slums, content to make mud pies in the, the slum because he has no idea what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. 
Is your heart a battleground like mine? You know, how wonderful today that we gather again and there is mercy for all our sin, the mercy of Christ for our souls. We can come again in repentance and know that His grace is greater than all our sin. This is what buying the field looks like day to day. It's a lifestyle of repentance. That's what we're called to. Repentance is simply this, letting go of all that is not Christ as the center and the foundation and the first priority, the guiding satisfaction of our lives and running again and again to Him, clinging to Him, resting in Him. Maybe your heart is not a battleground today. Maybe that's because you've settled for the slum mud pies of this world. You may have seen the treasure and it it looks good, but you never bought the field. This sadly is how many people approach Jesus. Jesus has value to them in a sense, but they never actually own him. They always keep him at arm's length. They haven't bought the field. They haven't been bought and owned by him. When we sing the songs, they have no understanding of what it actually means. I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. You can come to church and it's like going to a museum, looking at treasures behind glass windows. Maybe they look amazing, but they do you no good because you do not possess them. You do not own them. If that is you today, his invitation is this, Isaiah 55, one to two. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Stop making silly trade-offs. Come to Christ, buy the field. Trust Him alone for your life. That's the value of the kingdom and the cost of the kingdom. Number three, we see the joy of the kingdom. When we bought the house that we are living in now in Waterfall, I think it was something like the the 20th house that we actually physically went to go and see. Very difficult to find what we thought would suit our needs. Very difficult ultimately to pull the trigger as well. And still after we bought that house, even now there's that niggling wonder, that worry in the back of your mind, have I made a good financial decision? Is it a good investment? There is none of that in this passage. There is no buyer's remorse. In fact, only the opposite. One precious line, one phrase that sets the tone for what our Christian life ought to be in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In his joy, he sells his possessions. There is a way to live the Christian life where you are always looking over your shoulder at what you've given up, always looking around you at what you wish you had. I wish I could be like them. I wish I could still do that thing. I wish I didn't have to do this, that, or the other. It's even possible sometimes that we become angry with God because of the cost of following Christ. We can also easily fall into the trap of making all of our lives about ourselves, just about surviving, about our comforts. It's possible as a Christian even that you might be living your life where all of the sacrifice of Christianity has been taken out of it. 
When that's true, you don't have a, char- a category for having joy when real trouble comes your way. I was so convicted of this this week, worrying about all my problems. And I saw that, that, that video, I don't know if you guys saw it, that video of the Ukrainian pastor leading his scared church and singing, he will hold me fast as Russia is making its advance. Have the missionaries who refuse to leave Ukraine, have they gotten the short end of the stick in life? Or is the message that we keep hearing coming out a joyful message, we won't leave, now our Christ is going to shine like never before in our country. They will see our treasure. Did Paul get the the short end of the stick? Hated in city after city stoned, beaten time and again, shipwrecked, imprisoned on more than one occasion. He didn't seem to think so. Philippians 3, 7 to 8, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, that I'm, of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is the heart and the soul of the Christian life. I love Jesus more than anything I could possibly be called to give up for him, more than anything that I could possibly lose in this life. I'm not saying that the cost is not hard to bear at times. Jesus told his disciples what? He said, count it, count the cost. I'm not saying that duty as well is not important in our lives. It is. Uh, the Christian life, in a sense, is about duty, but it is not a, uh, we aren't driven by a begrudging sense of duty. We are to be driven by joy and love. We're meant to live our lives with the faith that knows whatever it costs me to follow Him, Christ is not robbing me. He is not robbing us. And calling us to obedience, he's not robbing us of pleasure, but he offers us himself pleasures at his right hand forevermore. And every loss that is ordained by his hand, he's not robbing us of a future. Every sacrifice that we make is met with the promise, if I suffer with him, I will be also glorified with him. Oh, church, How would our lives not be transformed if we really believe that the time we carved out with our Lord every day in prayer and scripture was key to our present joy in this world? How would our church not be transformed if we really believed in our hearts that joy in our hearts is tied more to the glory of the Lamb in this world and tied to seeing the nations give Him praise rather than us being liked in the world around us? What if we saw things from the perspective of eternity, that our possessions were there to be leveraged for the glory of the Lamb? What would happen if we really believed in our hearts that Christ is more than enough for us and that it's the, it's the temptations, it's the compromise that will rob us of peace and satisfaction? What if we really believed that trudging through the valley of the shadow of death with Christ is better than those mountaintop walks without Him. Oh, may the Spirit screw this, the value of the the kingdom deep into our hearts until our hearts are set afire with it. Can you see that treasure before your eyes today? 
I mentioned that, that story of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18. He seemed on the brink, a treasure hidden in the field, laid bare before him, but he was unmoved by it and went away saddened. He knew that his possessions, or he thought that his possessions were worth more. Well, Luke shares another story in Luke 19, doesn't he? About another man, he presents them back to back so you would make a good decision. Jesus is walking into Jericho, and there's a, a man, a wee little man, longing to see him. And this man just wants to get a glimpse, but he can't because the crowds are pressing in around Jesus, and he's too short, so he climbs into a tree just for the chance to see him. And what he got that day was more than just sight. Jesus comes and finds him. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm coming to your house today. We've got business to deal with. He scurries down from the tree, and it says he receives the Lord with joy. The crowds don't like it. What does the Lord want to have to do with this thief? But Zacchaeus' joy overflows in the giving up of half his possessions to the poor, he says, and I will, I will make right those who I have wronged four times. He knew what the other did not. He knew what the rich young ruler did not know. And that's this. It is irrational. It is irrational and ungodly to come face to face with the greatest of all treasure and be offered his kingdom and then to hedge your bets with the kingdoms of this world. What about you? Have you received that treasure today? I wanna close just by reordering our, our hearts to his glory. We sang that song. Now see the king who wears a crown, one made of shame and splinters, the sacrifice for ruined men, the substitute for sinners. Think for a moment about the trade-off that was Christ's in coming to this world the honor of heaven, for the shame of flesh, the humility of flesh, the scorn of men, the crown of gold for the crown of thorns. Jared Wilson again says, it is Jesus who has treasured the kingdom above all else. It is Jesus who has sold all that he had to gain a greater greatness. It is Jesus who bought the treasure of salvation by buying the whole field of creation. And so we know it is Jesus to whom has been given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Our Lord, we, we know and we confess our weakness today and our need for you. We know that we are often driven by many things and, and those things are not joy in Christ or rest in Him. We are very selfish very often, driven by instant gratification, driven by comfort and convenience in the world. So easily our lives slip into this rut of, of being fixed our eyes upon the things of this world and we need your help. Can you lift our eyes today? Lift our hearts that we would see you. Fix them on you, Jesus. You are the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before you endured the cross, despising the shame. Lord, we pray that we would see you and value you and love you and treasure you and that that would make a difference in the life of this church and not only in this church, 
send us out. Send us out with this treasure. Let the treasure be weighty in our hearts that we would not be able to keep it to ourselves. We pray in your Holy Spirit. Amen. Sorry, I think I'm getting, giving the benediction. I just wanna invite you, if you need prayer, you please come to the front, there'll be somebody to pray with you. Um, if you need somebody to speak with you and explain the gospel to you, if you want help to see the treasure today, please don't leave here. Um, come and, and let, let this moment not pass. Jude 24 to 25, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and, and now and forever. Amen.